Hello there, good evening, and welcome to Read With Well Wise Agatha. I'm excited to come your way again tonight. It is, of course, a good evening here from the shores of Nigeria, and we are 8 p.m. West African time right now. So wherever you're joining us from, I am glad that you are joining or that you have joined and that you are listening to me. I missed you guys over the weekend, I must say, but I do hope that you took your time to think about what we read through the weekend. We began a new book on Friday. We began reading the book Butterfly in Brazil by Glenn Pacquiao. And we looked at chapter one, which is titled Beginnings. And we looked at chapter two as well, titled Storing Up Greatness. And in chapter one, we saw that everybody wants to be great, yeah? but that there is a secret to being great. And a lot of people don't want to take that extra step. A lot of people tend to be hesitant about making that sacrifice. And we also looked at in chapter two that there is no right place or there is no right time other than where you are. Where you are is the right place and the time you're in is the right time. So there is nothing like I'm waiting on the right time or I'm waiting on the right moment. We saw in chapter two and we were encouraged in chapter two to not store up greatness because when you store up greatness or when you try to store up greatness, you might end up not doing anything. You just might not achieve anything. So step out and do what it is you need to do whilst you can. Tonight, we're looking at chapter three, and chapter three is titled History in the Making. If you're just joining us, welcome to Read with Worldly Wise Agatha. Let's see what we have in chapter three History in the Making. In 1963, MIT meteorologist Edward Lawrence encountered some unexpected results while running a computerized weather simulation to study how air currents rise and fall when heated by the sun. At one point in the experiment, Lorenz restarted the simulation in order to review the data he was getting. He entered the same initial values, expecting to get identical results. Instead, the results were markedly different it didn't make sense. After rerunning the experiment several more times, Lorenz discovered a slight discrepancy in his initial values. The numbers Lorenz had used were accurate to three decimal places, but the computer was calculating the numbers to six decimal places. The deviation seemed insignificant, yet it had a profound effect on the consistency of the results. Lorenz then realized that his experiment was demonstrating a property of physics known as sensitivity to initial conditions, first identified by the 19th century French mathematician Henry Poincaré. Poincaré suggested that small differences in the initial positions may lead to enormous differences in the final phenomena. In other words, small changes at the beginning can lead to big differences at the end. Lorenz applied his principle to the science of weather forecasting and hypothesized that small localized changes could initiate a chain reaction of weather patterns that would have far-reaching effects. To make his point, 
he posed the somewhat whimsical question. If a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil, does it cause a tornado in Texas? Thus, the phenomenon of big differences resulting from small changes came to be known as the butterfly effect. I'm going to take that again so you take note. Thus, the phenomenon of big differences resulting from small changes came to be known as the butterfly effect. Even if Lorenz's question isn't literal, it is nonetheless interesting. A butterfly flapping its wings is a humble, fragile, small, and seemingly insignificant act. It's also a necessary act. Flapping its wings is what a butterfly does to get from one place to the next. Yet, it is possible that through a series of interrelated consequences, the small local act of wing flapping gradually culminates in a raging Texas tornado. Like Lorenzo's hypothetical butterfly in Brazil, our efforts to create lasting change often have humble beginnings. Actually, sometimes we don't even realize that we're beginning anything all that special. Those who change the world are not always those who set out to. They're simply being faithful with the small necessary things right where we are. And somehow, over a long period of time, it ends up making a world of difference. Of course, the butterfly effect is just a hypothesis. It's not a rock-solid scientific truth. Life doesn't always turn out like the recipe says. Actually, neither does my cooking. This book is not a step-by-step guide to changing the world. There are no formulas, but there are principles. There are common scenes in the events that have shaped our world, common characteristics, a common path by which lasting change takes place. We can trace the footprints of those who changed history for the better and learn from those who made their lives count for something beyond themselves. This book is simply a collection of those principles, an unpacking of those big ideas seen in the Bible, God's account of history, and confirmed by our own records of human history. If you're just joining us, welcome to Read with Worldly Wise Agatha. We're reading chapter 3 of the book, Butterfly in Brazil by Glenn Packiam, and it's titled History in the Making. Welcome back. Our place in history. I have to confess something. I am a certified history nerd. I actually read the textbook for my humanities classes in college. I never slept through a single video lecture, not even the ones where Francis Schaeffer was wearing really long socks. I love reading stories of past accomplishments and looking for ways to connect them to contemporary culture. I enjoy mining for timeless principles in the exploits of people from the past and applying those principles to life today and making history now. As much as we may think that our day and age is unique in human history, and in many ways it is, there's also a sense in which there's nothing new under the sun. When it comes to human nature, human activities, and the creation of lasting change, 
The same principles apply today that have applied down through the ages. But before we can apply those principles to make history of our own, we need to answer a very important question. How is history made? Is it an irresistible force that moves us along? A tide that simply carries us away? Or is it a malleable work in progress that human beings shape for themselves? Do we achieve greatness or is greatness thrust upon us? Who is in control? Is it fate? Chance? Is it us? Is it God? As a Christian, I believe that God is the creator of all things and he's ultimately in control. But that doesn't really answer our question. As humans, we are not passive pawns that God shifts and shuttles in a purely deterministic game of chess. Our lives are part of a bigger story and somehow our choices contribute to it. We have a purpose, but we are not puppets. Part of our life's journey is to learn how to surrender to God and cooperate with him in shaping our lives around his purpose. Saying that God is sovereign means acknowledging that the story is his and it's about him. It also means recognizing that he has allowed us to participate in the story with him. He is the author and finisher, but we have very important roles to play. God at the improv. Think of it this way. Human history is like an improvisational movie. That's right, not an improv sketch, an entire movie. With God as the writer, director, producer, and lead actor. It's a work in progress, and we, the other improv actors, have the opportunity to put in a few scenes of our own. We're not just extras in a busy boulevard scene. We're characters with unique parts, personalities, and idiosyncrasies. So let's imagine a scene. You're on a date. Let's say it's your first date in a while. You were taking a break from the dating scene. You know, taking some time to clear your head and reconnect with God. In this scene, there are a few things you know the director doesn't want. You can't be a jerk. You can't end up in bed together. You know the limits, but the restaurant, the activity, the conversation, that's all you. Now, as it turns out, God is also in that scene. You soon discover he's in every scene, though you don't always see him. As you try your hand at this edgy style of acting called improv, you see that God improvises right along with you. And like a good actor, he leads you in each scene with subtle cues and actions. In case you forget the overall story, he is there to help you not to ruin the picture and to find your way back to the plot. God never forgets. He wrote the synopsis, remember? The, direct, the direction you go with the evening is your choice. You either advance the plot of God's story or you digress and distract from it. That's why you can't end up in bed with your date. It's outside the plot and will sidetrack the story that God is trying to tell through you. If you allow your sins to be hijacked by sin, they'll end up on the cotton room floor because they'll be ruined. 
But when you let God redeem your life, it can become a great sin, displaying a powerful performance by the main character. God's brilliance is seen in his ability to work the various parts and players together into a large story that serves his ultimate purpose. He knows what each sin is for and what purpose it serves in the overall picture. Still, how each sin unfolds depends in part on how the players play it. We can make choices that take the sin in a direction that God did not intend. But when we do that, we hinder the development of the story and don't advance the plot. If you've ever been to an improv performance and suffered through a sketch that just doesn't work, you know what I'm talking about. It makes it awkward for everyone. When we take a scene away from the storyline that God has prepared, our actions in that scene become pointless because God won't use them in the final cut. Although God can use even our cutting room floor scenes to refine our character and teach us important lessons, the more we come to understand the roles he has given us to play, the more our lives can become a part of the story God is ultimately trying to tell. The good news is, he is on the scene, always leading us back to the story. After all, he's the star and the story is his. If you're just joining us, good evening and welcome to Read It Well, Wise Agatha. We're reading chapter 3 of the book Butterfly in Brazil and it's titled History in the Making. Welcome back. God enters the scene. God loves breaking into history. He's not content merely to observe from a distance. He did not set the world to run like clockwork while he sat back and, you know, and watched time tick by. When humans, the crown of his creation, derailed the original story, God didn't wring his hands and wonder what to do about it. Instead, he chose to solve the problem by inserting himself into the scene. The Son of God wrapped himself in human flesh and was born as a carpenter's son. His birth was announced by angels and surrounded by barn animals. Within the first few years of his life, he was adored by wealthy kings and rogue shepherds. He came to save self-righteous God-followers and shamed sinners alike. He was completely God and yet all man. The mystery of the incarnation and our difficulty explaining it lies in this uncorrupted combination of divinity and humanity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, is God's answer to the human condition. The rescue from our otherwise inescapable demise. Our Savior, if there were to be one, had to be divine in order to be perfect and without sin, and thus capable of appeasing the wrath of God. But this Savior also had to be human, because it was humankind's wrongs he would pay for, and our place that he would have to take. The incarnation was the perfect answer. Divinity joined with humanity was the only way to satisfy God's justice and also display his love. God supplied our salvation by sending Jesus Christ to earth to live a sinless life, die a sacrificial death on our behalf, rise again on the third day, and ascend into heaven. The incarnation is absolutely central to our salvation. 
the incarnation is also an unmistakable clue to how God works. It is our clearest insight into God's modus operandi. So let's make two crucial observations. First, God is not a passive observer of human history, but neither is he the puppet master of the universe. He loves to lead us from inside the story. He shapes history by taking an active role in it, while at the same time standing outside of it. It's weird, I know, but he's God. He can have his cake and eat it too. Secondly, God works in both the dramatic and the prosaic, sometimes in the same instance. Consider again the birth of Jesus. On the one hand, the heavens were lit by singing angels and brilliant stars. On the other hand, the helpless infant lay in a manger at the back of an obscure, overcrowded, small-town inn, not a Roman palace or even a courtyard in Jerusalem. God's most noteworthy entrance onto the world stage is simultaneously dramatic and prosaic. It would seem difficult for most followers of Christ to miss his most dramatic moments. Yet, those closest to him during his time on earth seemed to make missing it an art form. Not that we've necessarily done much better in our own day and age. They missed the punchline of many of his parables and stories. They didn't realize who the most important people in the kingdom of heaven were, children in their innocence. And they missed the central point of his life, death and resurrection, not political ascendancy. This arresting combination of the unmistakably supernatural and the unremarkably ordinary is the surest mark of God's activity. While we spend time searching for God in heaven's clouds, he roams the earth with dirt under his fingernails and shadows under his eyes. Our Savior is one who callosed his hands swinging a hammer and an axe. He used dust and spit to heal a blind man. God's method has always been to wrap the supernatural in flesh and blood. He works through human beings inside space and time. He shows up in the most ordinary sins, the kind of sins where we don't necessarily have our handicam rolling. My wife and I have two little girls who are absolutely adorable. They got my skin tone and my wife's good looks. I'm already dreading their high school years. As my elder daughter Sophia approaches too, I'm witnessing firsthand the truth of that phrase so often repeated among parents. They just grow up so fast. So we've been trying to capture on camera as many moments as we can. So far, all the moments we have on tape are all the moments you might expect. Sophia rolling over her, her Sophia rolling over, her stumbling first steps, her first birthday party, and so on. But the moments I wish I could believe are all the ones that came with no warning. The sudden, spontaneous giggles, the shy look on her face when she tries to play hide and seek, the hilarious phrases she pulls out of the air, the random fits of dancing. Those are the things I wish I could catch on film. Several weeks ago, Sophia got an ear infection and a really high fever. It was her first truly miserable ailment. 
She lost her appetite, moped around the house, and clung to me like an obsessive ex-girlfriend. For some reason, she didn't want anyone else. Not her grandparents, not her aunt and uncle who were all visiting from out of town, and not even her mother. She wanted daddy to hold her, daddy to rock her, daddy to read to her, and daddy to wake up with her every few hours in the middle of the night, several times in a row. As exhausting as it was, those days were some of my favorite days so far as a dad. Sophia and I bonded in a very special way. It seemed as if for the first time, her father could provide something she needed. I remember lying down beside her, watching her fall asleep in my arms and feeling such an amazing sense of fullness, of meaning. I remember thinking, I'm a father. What did I do to deserve this beautiful gift? This is what life is all about. In those moments, I forgot about the stress of work or how tired I was. I sensed God himself surrounding me and right then, I wished I had my handicap rolling. It's still read with Weldy Wise Agatha. Good evening and welcome. We're reading chapter 3 of the book Butterfly in Brazil by Glenn Packiam and it's titled History in the Making. Lunchbox Miracles God is there in our non-handicap moments. We can offer him the most mundane moments, the dullest sins or routines and watch him do a miracle, just as Jesus did with the five loaves and two fish offered by the young boy. Jesus took the boy's mega lunch, blessed it, broke it, and supernaturally multiplied it to feed thousands. He took the ordinary and made it extraordinary. In his hands, the mundane became miraculous. It's up to us to recognize that God is still at work in our sins. He's asking us to surrender our meager lunches, the common, necessary stuff of everyday life to him. In so doing, we leave out the incarnation and bring God to earth. We become participants in the mysterious model of the unmistakably supernatural in the midst of the common and mundane. We become careers of the divine amid the broken humans around us. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is that the non-Christians have only the humanity to fall back on. Frailty defines their entire existence. But for those who believe in Christ and are born again, they become partakers of the divine nature, active participants in God's glorious mystery, having escaped the corruption that is in this world. That is the Christian's distinguishing mark. I bless the Lord that I am a Christian, a believer. To be conduits of change, we must be faithful stewards of the small, ordinary moments. God does not need us to be supernatural or mystical. That's what he is. He needs us to be human, common, and earthy. We are the vessels of clay. He is the exceedingly great treasure. Just at the point of Christ's life, was not his ascension, but his incarnation. Our goal as human beings on earth is not to escape earth and ascend to heaven, but to let heaven through us invade the earth we occupy. Every sin becomes significant as we find God there, and every sin is thus brought under his direction. 
When we've done our parts, when we've faithfully played the roles assigned to us, we find our names in the closing credits and our parts described as good and faithful servants. Tonight has been awesome. Tonight has been amazing. And I don't know about you, I'm not taking these lessons lightly. If there is any part of this um, read that strikes you, I will urge you to put a book bookmark in your mind or better still, write it down. It's said that what we write, we never forget. You could put it on your fridge, you could put it on your wall, somewhere where the lesson just resonates whenever you look at it. I am excited about this book, about the butterfly effect and how I can make big impacts from my very small beginning. Tomorrow we shall be looking at chapter 4 and chapter 4 is titled Shooting the Moon. I can't wait to read to you. So join me again tomorrow and please don't forget to tell your friends, tell your loved ones, tell everyone around you to come read with Worldly Wise Agatha. This episode is going to be available on Anchor FM shortly. Thank you for reading with me today. See you again tomorrow. Bye-bye.